Welcome to Reframe the Podcast, helping you reframe your thought patterns, habits and mindsets to create the life that you want to lead. Today's guest is someone that I was personally very interested to chat to. If you've followed me on social media for a long time, you will know that I suffer from bouts of insomnia. Um, And although they are more infrequent these days, they do still raise their ugly head now and then, especially at times of anxiety or overwhelm. Beatrix Schmidt is author of The Sleep Deep Method and a sleep coach and specialist. Today's chat is fascinating because it takes the subject to sleep far beyond the dark room and dim lights and early to bed kind of quick Google search solutions to lack of sleep that uh, we often find. I think you're going to find this as fascinating as I did. So for all of us out there who wake at two o'clock in the morning, wondering whether or not we forgot to put the bins out, this one's for you. Hi, and welcome to Reframe Club, Beatrix. It is a pleasure and a privilege to have you with us today. Now, um, we're introducing you. You are a sleep coach. um, And I think a really good place to start would be for you to tell us a little bit more about who you are, what being a sleep coach involves, and what you do and how you work. Yes, thank you. For, first of all, thank you so much for having me. And um, hi, everyone in the club. My story starts with me struggling with insomnia. And I, that was back in my 20s. And it really got to the point where it affected every area of my life. It affected my ability to first of all be able to rest, then be able to wake up in the morning, And obviously during the day, we all all want to achieve things. And I wasn't able to really do all the things that I wanted to do. And also at the level, at the standard that I wanted to do them. And I think this is some of the things that obviously I see through my work as well. You know, most of you who have had some sleep struggles, maybe you've already reached out to to a medical professional. That's generally the first route. And that's where I started too. But there was nothing physically wrong with me. There was nothing that test showed up with or, you know, there, there was nothing really that medicine could help me with other than the sleeping tablets. But of course, again, sleeping tablets don't change the sleep. It just helps, up to help, helps us to get some sleep. So basically, that's my story. And over uh, the, the next couple of years, I really got interested in what is it that's going to help me to return to good sleep? Because I slept really well before. And um, in 2014, I published my methodology, which is very much a combination of different strategies, different tools, techniques that are practical, not the science of it, but the practicalities, what it will take us to be able to really um, either overcome sleep problems or sleep really well at night. And that's called the sleep deep method. So since then, uh, for the last six and a bit years now, Uh, I've been helping professionals to overcome uh, sleep problems or just learn those skills around sleep. And what I do is look at sleep skills for life because these are skills. Providing you don't have a medical problem, it's a set of skills that you can develop, the tools and the techniques that will enable you to be able to really uh, sleep well at night, be able to get to sleep and wake up refreshed. So important, I think, being able to wake up and have the energy to, as you say, just go about normal, you know, let's not talk about doing a hit routine, just normal daily activities. 
Um, and you said they're about, use the term good sleep. So how would you qualify what is good sleep? You know, everyone says it's six hours, is it eight hours? Should I be waking up for a wee? You know, what's the, what is good quality sleep then? So I think one of the first things that I see is um, a lot of the times we're trying to think about it from a very scientific, scientific point of view. You know, a lot of the people that I work with start with um, overanalyzing their sleep, either via maybe a tracking app or something similar. So we're looking at REM sleep, right? This is one of the typical things that I guess get asked about how much REM sleep should I get? But we need to look at it as a bigger picture. We need to look at it sleep as part of our 24 hours, but also the different elements of sleep. So when I work with a client, I look at the four pillars. Pillar one is your ability to be able to first switch off in the evening. So this is the falling asleep process. And it's not a switch, it's a process. Uh, the second one is your ability to be able to sleep through the night. And again, one of the misconceptions here is we need to look at frequency of problems. If it happens once a month and you might wake up in the middle of the night, that's okay. But if it's consistently happening, if you're then not able to fall back into sleep, that's when it becomes a problem. Mm -hmm. And then the third one is one of the things that often people discard is your ability to wake up in the morning, both mentally and physically as well, not just physically. We both, we all wake up physically. It's generally the alarm or maybe the first cup of coffee, but it's how you're able to start the day, how you're able to really be fully refreshed both ways. And then the fourth one, which again, most people separate from sleep is your ability to have consistent amount of energy during the day. We all have ups and downs, but we shouldn't have highs and lows mm -hmm. that are extreme. So we look at being more in that middle consistently during the day. So when you look at great sleep, great quality sleep, all those four pillars will need to be in place for you to be able to get that optimum. Not just the number, but it's the quality too. That's really interesting you say that about looking at how sleep is impacting all of those elements because like food, we kind of have outsourced our measure of sleep to our trackers. You know, so many people have a Fitbit or an Apple Watch and they say, oh, I've had my, they look at the graph, don't they? And say, I woke up three times and I had eight hours and I was, but actually, as you say, being able to look at it through a much wider lens. And we do the same at Reframe Club when we talk about food. We actually encourage people to take their trackers off because we don't believe any third party thing can tell you whether or not you've eaten enough today or whether or not no, you shouldn't be hungry because you've had your allocated you yeah. know, amount. So yeah, I find that really interesting. And the other thing you mentioned there that really struck a chord with me is about the, the process. And you said it's not a case of switching off. It's a process to fall asleep. And I describe my husband, his brain as being like a warehouse with a giant switch. And he lies down at night and he goes, doo -doo. and within 30 seconds, the lights are out, it's, he's gone, it's gone. Whereas I feel like I lie in bed and I'm untangling fairy lights. My, that process seems to be my ability to fall asleep just goes on and on and on and on and on. Do you find, those kind of issues around falling asleep. So when I talk to my friends and family, they very frequently say, oh, my husband has no problem falling asleep, but I can lie there for an hour. In your experience, is insomnia or onset insomnia, does it have a gender difference? Do you say, is it more common in women than men? So that's quite interesting, actually. 
what I found over the years that it's more personality types or traits than women or men. So I actually work with a lot of men who might not talk about their sleep problems, but they do have a sleep problem. Whereas maybe women are probably generally a little bit more open about talking about our problems. So there's a couple of sort of misconceptions around that, um, which are quite fascinating actually. But I don't think there is, this is a gender thing or problem. I think often I see as a personality trait and it, I don't want to call it a problem. I think what I see is that you've got to embrace who you are and work with your personality traits to still be able to sleep really well at night. So when I struggled with my insomnia and I'm still pretty much, I don't call myself a perfectionist, but I have high standards, which means that we tend to put ourselves under more pressure or stress because we want to achieve close to perfection or high standards. So guess what happens when we go to bad that's when we revisit the whole day so that's not a women or men thing it's a personality trait thing um and also what's really interesting on what you mentioned about you versus your husband is he's gonna have a process but it's not obviously visible to you he's going to have some sort of process that will allow him to reach the point of climbing into bed and being able to switch off but it's still a process. Yes. But for you, it's a different preparation, a different process. So when I look at switching off, for example, it's your emotional, sorry, it's physical, emotional, and mental preparation for sleep. Mm -hmm. Now, often people who sleep well, and this is a generalization, but it's quite a good enough generalization. They tend to be calmer. They tend to detach from problems. They tend to be less judgmental which means that when they get to sleep, they don't think about what went wrong during the day. So their process of this physical, mental and emotional preparation helps their personality to be able to switch off. That's very true. You have just described my husband. <laughs> That's yeah. very true. Do you think there's been a kind of correlation? Do you think our relationship with sleep has shifted over time? Do you think Kind of pressures, the societal pressures that we're under now, or the culture we live in has had a direct impact on our relationship with sleep. Yes, absolutely. And I think when you look at how we live our life today versus even maybe 15 years ago. So one of the reasons that my sleep got significantly worse and I reached the level of insomnia I used to live in Hungary. So I'm originally from Hungary. I grew up in a smallish town and you don't have 24 seven access to everything. And back then, obviously we didn't have the technology either. We didn't have the internet, you know. And when I moved to the UK and I moved to London, you can do pretty much anything in London, even 15 years ago. Maybe the technology wasn't a part of it, but you could go out, you could go to the cinema, you could meet your friends. So I come from a culture which was a slower paced culture into a very fast paced culture. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that I see with the clients that I work with, or even within the organizations that I, I going to speak to, it's this pace of life that has changed. Now we've got a lot of technology that enables us to be able to do whatever we wanna do, at any time. 
which means that when you go into bed, bed is no longer for sleep. It could be for searching online, it could be checking Facebook, it could be, oh, I'm just gonna read up that article that I was really interested in. Oh, I'm gonna read that newsletter because I might as well, because I'm not sleeping. So we now filled our evenings with things to do as well and nights. Very true, very true. And I think, uh, and also blue lights from our phones, the, the blue light that's emitted, that interferes with our, does it interfere with our circadian rhythms or with the production of melatonin? What is it about the blue light? So there are lots of research on, uh, on blue light. Um, and yes, it does affect us, but also you have to look at the bigger picture. One of the research projects that I've seen looked at the amount of light exposure during the day and then the, the exposure to blue light and how that affected the circadian rhythm. What they looked at is the amount of light exposure during the day and versus the light exposure through blue light. Um, and the more light exposure you tend to have during the day, the less the blue light tends to affect you. And this is a generalization. But also another thing to add to this is it's not necessarily exactly the blue light, but you get excited about what you're about to do. So you look at that mental and emotional trigger of, oh, I'm gonna engage with this. So you force your body to wake up yes. and engage with the thing you're doing. So it's it's partly blue light, but partly also what happens when you physically make yourself awake. The purpose of the night is no longer sleep. The purpose of the night is I can't sleep. I'm going to do something. So you're forcing your body to, instead of focus on falling back into sleep, you're now focusing on, on being awake. It's actually a really complicated network that's interfering in effect with your sleep, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and you know what? It is absolutely fascinating. But I always encourage everyone to look at it from a practical point of view, not exactly the science of it. Because, yes, the science is really important. But even within science, we know quite little about sleep itself. So, for example, going back to REM sleep, as far as I know right now today, nobody can train you to have better, more REM sleep because your body does it. You're not fully in control of your sleep cycles. Your body naturally goes through them. But when you look at the skills of switching off, the skills of being able to sleep through the night, those are practical things you can put in place. Mm. Those, are, those are emotional uh, or mental or physical processes, habits, routines that your body can recognize. Our brains are very powerful. Well, we're not training ourselves to be able to do what we need to do to be able to sleep well. So do you think our bodies, part of the um, answer to this is around rituals and routines and prompts to the brain around sleep? So yes and no. The reason I'm saying yes and no is because sometimes what I see, actually not sometimes, quite often what I see is people over-prepare. So even for you, you're going to have a certain preparation for sleep or to go to bed, but it's not serving you. Mm -hmm. So I don't believe in packing up the last hour of your day with things to prepare, but actually really look at how you close your day. 
and get ready for sleep, not ready for bed. Again, there is a difference. So if you think about the difference, getting ready for bed could mean that you change into your whatever you wear at night, um, you brush your teeth, you maybe take off your makeup or for men, you know, it could be, you know, could be just brushing teeth actually, <laughs> uh, much simpler. But for someone who struggles with sleep, generally speaking, their preparation for bed is, oh my gosh, am I gonna sleep tonight? Mm -hmm. Can I even switch off tonight? I'm gonna take my phone with, you with me just in case I can't. Uh, I might even take a notepad with me just in case in the middle of the night I have great ideas and I'm going to write them down. So we, so the person who struggles with sleep will prepare for possibility of sleep, not sleep itself, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, it does. And I think I shared with you before this call that I'm and listening to you now, I'm recognizing that I fall into that category where I go, I'm so in effect setting myself up for the anxiety of not sleeping that I use my deep sleep spray and my roll on and I put a mask on and I have noise cancelling um, earplugs because my husband snores very loudly. <laughs> oh, thank yeah. you for putting that out on the podcast. Yeah. Um, but as you say, I have a notebook next to my bed and I'm almost listening to you now. I'm recognising that I'm building up anxiety behaviours around, whereas I think they're supportive. I think when I'm doing everything that everything says about going to sleep. Um, but actually, from what you're saying, that could be having a detrimental effect. And, and you, know, you know what happens is you train your brain to be okay with doing anything else. You're not training your brain and your body to just focus on sleep. You're training for all these other options. And the reason I always use training and preparing and process is because that's what I see in my practice. But again, those of you who listen to this and you, you might have had all these routines, it's important to be kind to yourself too. Sometimes when you've got all these routines and you take all of them away, it causes more anxiety. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I work with a client, it's a three month process. We got to figure out, first of all, what is the first thing we need to change? For example, switching off or falling asleep, or, you know, is it that maybe actually your energy levels are going to be, if they're higher, then you're going to be able to start the day better so you've got to figure out where, where to start so break it down break it down to starting with one thing changing one thing i always say one step at a time because this is a lifelong skill you're building it's not going to change overnight so often when people look for hacks or or quick fixes they don't work because you're not getting to know, know yourself you're putting place a, a top five tips too but you don't do top five tips do you have to do you you have to work with who you are your struggles your emotions your anxieties your uh, maybe even thinking around sleep so uh, if you've got all these routines start with really understanding why you're doing them are you doing them because they really help you to sleep or are you doing them because you hope that it will help you to sleep? And the two are very different. Very distinctly different. So yeah, and in the same way we would bring our awareness to what's disrupting our ability to tune in with our hunger and fullness, for example, it's the same skill set. It's bringing that level of awareness, isn't it? Rather than leaning just into the behavior or the action 
and assuming or hoping that that would be enough. Yeah. And I think this is, I see it all the time. Unfortunately, the reality is that if you Google or search for, you know, top tips on sleep, you're going to have pretty much the same top 10, 15. Yeah. But we're not 10, 15 types of people. We're hundreds of different or thousands and thousands of different versions because our life stresses are different. Our personality traits are different. So, but it doesn't have to be scary and overwhelming. It's got to start with self-awareness and also really recognizing um, that you have to put time into it. It isn't gonna be a five minute job. You know, when I work with clients, we're putting hours into figuring out these things. And it doesn't mean that you can't do it. I mean, I've done it by myself. It took me longer, but I'm still learning about my own sleep because sleep is never perfect. You know, I've gone through a very challenging personal time at the end of last year. My mom passed away. Well, guess what? Significant life events will mean that your sleep will change dramatically because there is heightened emotions. There is more thinking, more stress, whatever stresses those are. So we've got to actually be kind with ourselves, acknowledge where we're at, and we just take one step at a time. And I think this is the interesting thing for me personally, is that throughout that very emotionally charged time, I was still able to sleep well. Not as well as the week before, because obviously when somebody passes away so close to you, there is going to be, going to be a lot of emotion but I was able to maintain my sleep at a level that I was able to function still pretty much at a high level. You mentioned there about, it, well, also the importance of how sleep serves us and helps us regulate our emotions and stay present and grounded in, even in amongst some of the most difficult life events and experiences. And that kind of brings me to where we are now. So we're recording this and we are now in, at uh, the beginning of 2021, and we've entered another lockdown here in the UK, um, we've all been exposed to an ongoing level of stress with COVID since March last year. It's a long, it's an extraordinarily long time yes. for people to be enduring um, all of this. Have you seen in your own clients kind of a shift in sleep? Has it been impacting people's sleep? Absolutely. And you know what's really interesting, um, what I've seen is that it's exactly what I've been talking about. So I talk about seven areas of life. Mm -hmm. I won't go through it because it's going to take a lot of time, but all the seven areas of life wrap up our entire 24 hours. Every single area has been impacted by the change in our lifestyle. Every single area. So just the top two, physical, we're not able to move around, exercise, meet our friends physically as we were able to. The second is emotions. Well, when you're locked into an environment with either, you know, small children, family, you, whatever you have at home, the emotions have risen. We, we weren't able to maybe go for a run or go to the gym and let it out, right? So the emotions, um, Rise and also emotions of insecurity, emotions of hope for the future. And the third one is our social interactions. Being able to hug someone, being able to see their smile, 
you know, yes, Zoom calls are great, but it's not the same as a good old hug. Yeah. And I think, again, when you think about these things, now we can learn from it. So, for example, um, I'm a very touchy-feely person. So for me, hugs has been hugely missed. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that I can't create similar environments for myself. So, for example, as simple as self-soothing, and I self-soothing often comes into talks um, or, or conversations when we talk about babies or toddlers. But we're humans, it's the same thing. So by if you if you actually practice those um, tools, techniques to give you that sense of connection, because again, touch cogs are sense of connection. So if you're actually able to develop those practices that can help you ground yourself and experience part of that, then it's not as difficult. The other thing for me is um, actually calling up a friend and having a long chat. I mean, just at the weekend, I had caught up with a friend of mine and we haven't spoke for about probably six months. And we spoke for four hours. I loved it. It's what I needed. Massively fulfilling. And, and what I'm hearing and what I'm reflecting on as we talk is how we have kind of compartmentalized sleep as this thing that gets done like another thing on the list in the same way we do, oh, I must cook dinner, I must eat, I must do my 30 minutes exercise, I must get eight hours sleep. And we underestimate how highly interrelated sleep is with all those other aspects. You know? And as someone who, like you, I, I, my love language, I don't know if you've ever done love language, but mine is yep. just touch. I need to be held, I need to be hugged. I like to be costed in, you know, in bed, I like to be wrapped up. Um, I'm absolutely hearing how that actually, from a sensory point of view, would serve me probably more than my deep pillow spray, to be honest, my deep sleep pillow spray. And, 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 you know, these are the things that people don't think about. So I don't know how many times I have conversations with clients about the bits that they just, have, just haven't linked to their sleep. So as an example, one of the clients I worked with a couple of years ago, uh, came to me with a serious sleep problem. And I think she was having, I can't remember exactly, but she was having something like five or maybe six hours of sleep. And she couldn't figure out what was wrong. You know what? We figured out that actually a family picture in her, her bedroom unconsciously and unconsciously reminded her of the family problems she had with one of their sons who stopped talking to them. So they couldn't see the grandchildren. And every time she walked into her bedroom, seen the picture, triggered the emotions, yeah. but she kind of got used to it. Yes. As soon as you remove a trigger, and I talk about emotional, mental, and physical triggers, both in terms of positive and negative ones, when you remove a trigger, the sleep is impacted. Also, you know, if you work almost or not work but engage with things up until the moment you go to bed guess what happens when it's all quiet around you your brain your thoughts will go oh i'm just going to use this time to brainstorm whatever i'm going to brainstorm that's a natural process if we make time for it during the day it won't happen at night so in effect from the moment we wake up we are the actions we take are either supporting or not supporting our brains our emotions our bodies 
for that time at 10 o'clock at night when we go to bed. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is where it goes back into the science of it too. So when you look at the circadian rhythm, number one, most people don't actually know that every organ has its own circadian rhythm too, which is why, you know, when we would have traveled to a different time zone, as we start eating differently, sunlight, so on, you can actually adjust your sleep. Um, you know, and vice versa, when you have the jet lag, that's because you are now um, sort of in deprivation. But every part of our body has a circadian rhythm, which adds up to this bigger circadian rhythm. But when we're not able to help our body to go through the day, then the rhythm goes out of the window. This is where, you know, naps even though you might feel more productive after the nap, but you still patched up your sleep. Mm -hmm. I always say when somebody sleeps really well at night consistently, they don't need a nap because they're able to function through the entire day and get everything done, mm -hmm. right? They'll be super productive. And you see that for, through food as well, right? When, you are, when the person is able to figure out how they can nourish their body, they can last through the entire day. Yes. No need for a nap. And it's all our health and our well-being and our sleep are so interrelated and lack of sleep is stress on the body isn't it in the same way any other stressor would be and and it's it just puts us into you know sleep deprivation is not just a physical thing we know brain fog we know our we get snapped Happy. I mean, you know, one of the questions I asked during um, during the complimentary session I offer is, you know, what are the negative effects that of that lack of sleep? I don't know how many times I heard I, heard I get snappy. I don't like the way I maybe behave with, with my husband, wife, partner, children, even dog. You know, I, I just don't I don't feel like I'm as kind. I don't feel like I'm as patient, you know. My, my brain goes 100 miles an hour because it's trying to fix everything at a high speed. But when you're rested, you tend to be a little bit slower. And this is, again, one of the things I say. I'd rather you con continuously function at 80% all the time than 20 some days and 100 another. Yes, wise words. Very wise words. Definitely, Richard. And um, so how can we support ourselves so if you're someone listening to this podcast now and you're going that's me that's me um what are some of the first steps that someone can take to um bring their awareness to what might be happening for them and in, in trying to unpick where some of that might be lying for them so the first step i always suggest and i use it with all my clients as a continuous part of my work as a sleep diary okay. um now please don't use your your variables to give you that you need the feeling element of the sleep diary how do you feel when you wake up in the morning is one of the questions mm -hmm. how rested do you feel you know it's not just the data it's the mental and emotional part of that too so a sleep diary is a great way for you to start understanding where are you at with your sleep and also look at the frequency. So I always say, don't make things into a problem if they aren't, are not a problem. But if the frequency, uh, and generally speaking, when we look at sort of insomnia, sleep, seriously problems, then you, you're probably sleeping lower than six hours, 
and at least three times out of seven days continuously. That's when we really look at it as a problem. And one of the things that I do with the sleep diary that I uh, put together is I look at what helped you to sleep, not to go to bed, but to actually sleep, and what prevented you from sleeping well. And you know that, we all know that. If we actually ask ourselves the question and put our hand on our heart and even quietly in our heads we answer, we will know. And then the next stage is finding out what actually works for you to enhance it and really look at those four pillars that I mentioned earlier. So if you have more than one of those pillars, pick the one that troubles you the most and work on that first. Don't try and put everything in place at once because your brain will go into overdrive and it will not know what to do with it. Little bits of change is gonna be much better for you to get to know yourself, get to know your sleep and improve your sleep than changing everything overnight. Yes, absolutely. And as you say, by kind of using a diary to help you helicopter above and begin to see the patterns and join the dots, I think, as you say, many of us already know, but it's mm. the process of externalizing that that helps us acknowledge it, really, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. But what three simple steps? Obviously, a diary is something someone can do immediately, but what three simple steps could our Reframe listeners um, take away today and put into action tonight if they are someone who dreads going to bed or going to sleep? Okay. First one, sleep diary, definitely, because it's going to help you get to know yourself within your sleep environment, environment meaning, you know, um, your bed and so on. The second thing they are, that I often suggest is stand at the door of your bedroom, potentially with a notepad, but not too close to bed, maybe do it in the morning, and have two columns, things I like about my bedroom and things I don't like about my bedroom, and approach it from... A, is it helping me to sleep or is it not? Not just that, you know, your husband snores. That's out of your control. I was going to say, my husband. (laughs) That's what I sometimes suggest, sleeping into different bedroom. But again, some people like it, some people don't. But, you know, ultimately, we can all improve our sleep. We just got to figure out what are the things that we're actually willing to do. Another thing that I always look at is not just the usual ones, you know, the lights and the curtains and all that. Sometimes actually dark curtains means that you don't get enough light in the morning to wake up. So it can either or. Uh, Another thing that I look at is really, like you said, the five love languages is actually something I often use when I see that a client is kind of struggling to figure things out. You've got to incorporate you into your bedroom for best sleep. And then the third one um, is your bedroom, sorry, your bed must stay for sleep and intimacy only, Mm -hmm. nothing else. And that's the hardest for people who struggle with sleep because you're hoping you're not guaranteeing sleep. So if you're hoping sleep, you're taking distractions with you that will help you when you're struggling. Your bed needs to be a place for sleep and intimacy only. And when your brain and body gets used to that, it's able to compartmentalize the bed for that purpose. It takes time, 
but I would suggest remove all those what I call entertainment elements, either the phones or the notepads or whatever else you might have. If you wear anything to monitor your sleep, take it off. That's consciously telling your brain, oh, you know, I must remember how I slept. No, it doesn't matter. I'd rather you relax in bed than stress about why you're not sleeping. And again, it, I know it's not easy, I've been there, but the more you relax, the more your body and your brain is able to sleep. And, and may I ask, where, where, do, where do things like books and reading fit into that then? So that's, that's again a sort of not a black and white answer really. Um, most of the time what I see is people read um, in bed because again, they think it's helping them to switch off. But most of the time, it's an entertainment element. Yeah. Now, this is what I always say, don't make it into a problem if it isn't. Mm -hmm. But I would test something out. If you read in bed, whether it's a Kindle or a book, doesn't matter. Instead of reading for 20 minutes, I would suggest you don't read and see whether or not you still fall asleep. And most of the time, what will happen is you still fall asleep without reading. Because reading isn't necessarily enabling things. It's extending the time that you're, you're spending without sleeping. Yes, yes, very true, very true. And if you like reading, don't read in bed, read somewhere else. Very true. It's a bedtime thing, it's a hobby. So read somewhere else. And we'll definitely try that. Um, it has been, I mean, it's fascinating talking to you. I could talk to you for hours on this subject and I feel like I'm learning so much. Um, but to finish up, if you could have a billboard next to the M25 or stand on top of a very large mountain be able to talk to everybody and give them one piece of your wisdom, what would that be? Sleep is a skill, not rocket science. Oh, very good. Sleep is a skill, not rocket science. Yeah. And I think that's very true because I think it's something else we keep popping in the overthinking pot. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And where could our listeners and our Reframe Club members find you, find your book, find out about working with you? Where can they hear all about you? So um, I have two websites <laughs> because I'm a speaker as well. So um, either it's thesleepdeepmethod.com mm -hmm. or uh, the personal website, which is beatrixaschmidt.com come over to the website, there are lots of different resources. You know, if you do struggle with sleep, then I do offer a complimentary session, which is my ability to be able to really um, have a chat and, and start somewhere. So you can actually start with a, with a good proactive and practical step, so. Amazing, fabulous. We will pop all those links in our show notes, Beatrix, but thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for tuning in and we hope you're able to take something of value away from today's episode. Perhaps one small action you can put into practice today. If you are enjoying Reframe, then please do subscribe and rate the podcast as this helps us reach more lovely listeners. As always, here at Reframe Club, we are rooting for you.